Welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Jan Orman. In this podcast series, we've invited people we know and admire to tell you their stories. My name's Paula Kotovich. So my name is Craig Sample. Evie Rader. Molly Shorthouse. My name's Percy Knight. I was a career detective in the New South Wales Police Force. I identify as a trans woman. I am a remote doctor in East Arnhem Land. These are people who may not have made the headlines, but whose stories are just as worthy of your attention as those you hear about in the media. Living with cancer. I was struggling with PTSD for eight or nine years. I just had a lot of fear. I was well and truly burnt out. These are people who have flourished and met life's challenges while managing their social and emotional well-being. Uh, my career now uh, is as a mental health advocate and educator. I led a team that negotiated a $22 million native title. It definitely taught me in my life a lot of persistence and gave me a lot of strength. We're hoping you'll find something in these stories to inspire you, whatever your situation right now. Kim, I'm 43. I am the founder and the operations manager for Solar Smiles Dental Charity, which is an international dental charity looking after 2,500 kids in Timor Leste. I'm really proud of this charity, and um, it's all come about from me actually having a mental health illness. Mental health issues actually hit me between the eyes and it was just something I'd never really come across before or had any experience with. And then all of a sudden it impacted my life dramatically. I went from nothing to a million all in one go. So basically what happened is I was running my own small business in Bundaberg and my husband at the time had had an affair with the 16-year-old junior and I basically confronted this junior and, you know, she left the business and I went into the back office and uh, hid under a table in the smallest, darkest place that I could find and I started to self-harm. And that was my introduction to having a mental health illness in any way, shape and form because it had never come into my life previously. Um, My mum and dad came and my dad took me down to the emergency hospital and, uh, got me some treatment. They sort of said, well, here's some medication and, you know, you need to go and talk to a psych, but it's situational, so it's going to go away. Um, and and to be honest, it did. That that was at 24. I, I did everything they told me to do. And three months later, it, three to six months later, I, I was able to give up the medication. My life went back to normal. Um, in actual fact, it was like it never happened. So I wasn't actually expecting it to be something that was going to be part of my life forever. However, at the age of 30, I was living in London and uh, I had just gone through my second marriage breakup and I was sitting on um, the top deck of a London bus on the way home and um, tears just started streaming down my face because I was feeling quite upset and feeling really alone and 
the weird thing is, is that not one person on that bus even noticed. And that just made me feel like it wouldn't matter whether I was on the planet or not. And I went home and I sort of got my affairs in order and I rang my husband that I'd separated from and I told him he should come around and check on our dogs on the weekend because I was going to be away. Um, he kind of realised something wasn't quite right and kept me on the phone for a few hours and uh, made me go and see a doctor the following day. So that kind of saved my life that night because I, I just hadn't planned on being on the planet. And, again, it, it struck me between the eyes out of the blue. And then from there, that it, it has now been an ongoing part of my life ever since. Looking back, knowing what I know about mental health now, the first episode, the second episode, neither of them were situational. Mental health uh, issues have been part of my life uh, ever since I was young. So initially, um, the situational episode when I was about 24 was just you have depression, it's situational because of what's happening in your life. Uh, at the age of 30, I because I had uh, become suicidal and been admitted into hospital under suicide watch, that was just diagnosed as being severely depressed, sorry, severely depressed with uh, suicidal idealisation and self-harming. However, you know, it took a few years and, you know, I, ha I had this amazing psychologist when I was living in Townsville who, you know, I'd been working with, with for about 12 months, you know, under this uh, diagnosis of depression. And one day he said, Kim, we've been charting what you're capable of doing, you know, through all these swings. Do, do you ever notice that you, you know, sometimes you are well, you speak quickly, you you know, you have a lot of things going on, you're very energetic, how does that make you feel? And I kind of didn't think anything of it because people had just been telling me I was depressed. He said, you're capable of doing things that you're just not capable of doing when you're down. And he said, I'd really like you to go and see my friend who's a psychiatrist down the road and just have a chat to him. So I came home and I Dr. Googled myself as you do. And strangely enough, the Black Dog came up Black Dog Institute came up with their self-help um, sort of questionnaire that you can fill out and I filled it all out and, you know, lo and behold, it came out saying you may have elements of bipolar. Um, so I printed that out and I took it to my first psych appointment and um, he looked at it and he made me fill out a questionnaire. I think it had like 300 questions in it. And lo and behold, yes, bipolar, um, with elements of borderline personality and OCD. And um, that, that's how I got my first and true diagnosis. It, it, it didn't come immediately. It, it would have been a good two to four years later after the uh, severely depressed and suicidal and self-harming. When I finally got my diagnosis, it was such a relief. And to be honest, my psychiatrist, he was absolutely phenomenal. So he sat me down and he said, Kim, I... I this is what I think your diagnosis is. I think you, that you have bipolar 2, borderline personality, OCD elements. And I said, okay. And, you know, when you first get that, for me it was a little bit of a relief because I was like, well, okay, I'm not just suicidal and severely depressed. There is more to this. And that's why I'm capable of doing these other things when I'm feeling really well. And then he opened up his computer 
and he typed in people that have bipolar and a list of all these amazing world changers um, came up. You know, there was world leaders, there was musicians, there was artists, there was, you know, people doing charity work and I left feeling in really good company. Like I had just joined this elite team of people that, you know, okay, we have our down bits, but wow, when you are feeling great, you can really, really do some incredible world-changing things. So I walked out feeling super positive going, okay, well, the depression is part of this. It's not something that's going to go away, but we just have to find ways of managing it. The ways that I tend to manage my mental health, it comes in a few different ways. So the first one is obviously making sure that I have regular appointments with my psychiatrist and I have a uh, talking psychiatrist who is sort of somewhere between a normal psychiatrist that doses out medication as well as a psychologist who does talking therapies. So I'm very lucky to have found her and I see her on a regular basis. So my psychologist and I, what we did is we were actually, instead of just sort of charting Kim is high or Kim is low, we kind of did the whole, so for my job I'm a recruiter and what we did is when I was very low, you know, that's sitting on the couch not doing anything and being quiet. But then I'd get a little bit better and then I would go into research mode. So I would start researching clients that I wanted to approach, but I wasn't capable of talking to them yet. And then once that had sort of a few days or a week had passed, then I would get to the stage where I could start sending them out emails saying, look, I have this, um, I have this, recruiting, uh, you know, I have a dentist that might be uh, of interest to you. Do you want me to come and have a chat to you about uh, using me as your recruiter? And then as someone would say yes, that would lift my mood a little bit. And then we were charting like all these different stages and things that I was able to do at different stages in my cycle all the way up until, you know, going into client meetings and winning clients over and then running around a million miles per hour and probably over-servicing them until I became exhausted and then sort of had a fall down again and then the, my cycle would start again. But by charting it out in such great detail like he and I did, I can actually now see where I am in my cycle. It, it, for me, it's very distinctive. I, I can literally pick my day and go, this is where I am in my cycle. I can see as I'm going higher. And then if I start going too high, I know that I have to rein that back in. So I have very good support in my husband that goes, Kim, okay, you've done one day of working 18 hours. You're going a little bit too high. You need to make sure that you're getting more sleep or you need to make sure that, you know, you're going to bed earlier or you need to make sure you're going and doing exercise today. So by having someone really great around me who knows my cycle as well as I do, we're able to manage that. I have put into place um, when I'm very down, I find it very hard to get out the house, uh, sort of elements of agoraphobia, not wanting to leave because when I'm down, I don't want people to see me like that so they treat me differently. I only like them, I only like them seeing me when I'm, you know, well and what I'm capable of doing. So I've actually organised with a personal trainer who comes to my house and uh, uh, pretty much I Googled on I Googled for a dog walker, basically, a human dog walker, and that's a personal trainer, strangely enough. So he comes to my house and he makes sure that I get out of the house twice a week. So I'm making sure that, you know, I'm keeping up regular exercise two to three times per week. Um, I am one of those people that is a huge advocate 
for medication. Um, I have a very intuitive psychiatrist and look, we work together with my medication levels and I have the same medication all the time, but depending on where I am in my cycle can depending can depend on how much medication I'm taking. So if I'm in those lower parts of my cycle where I'm in the depressive phases, I'll take more medication and that helps me sleep, it helps me rejuvenate. I'm usually quite tired during those because I have been on one of my highs. And then when I'm sort of in that mid part of my cycle, she allows me to take a little bit less medication um, and that helps with my creativity and it helps with lots of other different things. And then as I get in that higher part, I can still stay on my lower medication, but we both know if my highs are getting a little bit too high and then I start taking extra medication as a precaution. So it's not a huge medication fluctuation but it's just a little bit but I wouldn't go one day without my medication it's I think medication has this negative connotation around it that you're less of a person if you take medication but you would never ask a diabetic not to take theirs so I don't really understand why you would ask someone with a mental health illness to not take theirs or that they're only well when they finally get to come off their medication. Medication is part of me for the rest of my life and it, it doesn't make me a lesser person. In fact, it helps me become the best version of myself that I can be. My other big thing that helps me control my mental health is giving back to the community. Um, during COVID when I wasn't able to, or you know, the main part of lockdown of COVID where all of that was sort of locked down and I wasn't able to, I really felt the need that my mental health uh, is a lot better when I can help people that are in need and underprivileged and it gives me this sense of helping. Um, it gives me a sense of gratitude. So when I go overseas and I work in developing countries, so I have worked in Cambodia with my charity and we currently work in Timor-Leste, um, I meet these people and they are the happiest people that you will come across. They're genuine, they're kind. And you know what? They have so much less than what we have here and yet they are beautiful and I there is nothing like the gratitude that I feel for my life and then being able to help them as when I'm standing on the top of this uh, guest house when I'm in Morbisi, Timor-Leste, and I just look out and there's, you know, houses without water, houses without electricity, houses without complete walls, and I just look out and I just feel incredibly privileged that they've allowed us to come into their community and, and give them a, a hand up rather than a hand out and incredibly privileged to have their friendship um, as well as, you know, just being very grateful and grounded for what I have here in Melbourne. Solar Smiles was created out of a moment of opportunity and realisation. So I had been very, very sick and my parents had been looking after me after being suicidal and then the first time they let me out of their site, I decided to go overseas backpacking in Cambodia. I didn't know much about Cambodia and on my very last day that I was there because I went to see the temple, the very last day I was there they took me to the killing fields which is where thousands and thousands of Cambodians were killed and dumped into large mass graves 
And as I was walking around the killing fields, there's these little dirt paths and there was teeth coming up through the dirt paths and that just resonated with me so much being an ex-dental assistant. And I sat down in front of the stupa that holds, which is a building, and it holds 8,000 human skulls of people that were murdered on that site and I cried like I'd never cried before, which is saying something considering I'd tried to take my own life just a year and a half, two years ago at that point and I just thought these people would have done anything to survive and yet I have had nothing to live for for two years and you know what that's this incredible head and heart moment where I thought you know what I can do something I I can do something to help you so I went home to Australia and I thought about what I was going to do and sponsored a child in Cambodia for a while and all of a sudden you know I I went out one day and I went to a Rotary International uh, market stall and there was a stall there for Cambodia and I thought, wow, I'm going to give some money, I want to get involved, and I did. And then working with Rotary um, gave me the opportunity to fundraise and basically what I decided that I was going to do was um, fundraise to get these solar-powered backpack dental chairs and uh, we did. We walked around the streets of Melbourne at market stalls and other events collecting 50-cent pieces and we fundraised um, $2,760, oh, sorry, no, there was like $7,260, uh, 50-cent pieces and we bought these two solar-powered backpack dental chairs. Uh, I got a team together with the help of the Rotary Club because we're actually a Rotary project and we took a team of volunteers, self-funded volunteers over to Cambodia and we delivered $126,000 worth of free Australian treatment to children for two weeks, um, which was life-changing for them and life-changing for me. And during that time there was this lady and she came in and she had her shoulders rounded and she sort of shuffled in and she wouldn't look anyone in the eye. And um, I found out through a translator that she had HIV. She, was, she wasn't wealthy but she'd saved up enough money to go to a dentist and um, she'd gone to three of them and all three of them refused to treat her because she was dirty because she had HIV. Now, she had caught HIV from her late husband who had had an affair. And so it was through no fault of her own that she was in this situation. So we popped her in our chair. We did a surgical extraction on one of the hardest, you know, teeth. It was it was in Australia. Anyone else would go, I hate the dentist. You know, at the end of her treatment, she stood up and um, she was crying and she hugged my dentist and thanked her and she hugged my dental assistant and thanked them and then hugged me because we'd been able to do something for her and get her out of pain that, you know, no one else would do for her because apparently she was dirty. So, you know, that that to me has just been a driving force ever since. So since then we've now taken the team over to Timor-Leste into a very rural community way up in the mountains two hours from Dili uh, called Mulbisi, and we now look after 10 schools, which is 2,500 kids, and we deliver toothbrush and toothpaste to them and concentrated fluoride twice a year and then we also take our clinical teams over as well and uh, we do the same kind of work for them. When you get the absolute privilege to be able to help someone in a way that they can't help themselves, it 
it fills your cup. And I know this sounds weird because people talk about cups and things all the time, but it, it does just put a little bit in your cup and then you feel great. And that does bring on that beautiful euphoric clay type feeling of, you know, gratitude and all those things. But you know what, when I am really sick and I'm unwell and I'm in a really dark place, if I know that there is someone out there somewhere that is happy that I took the time to help them, that helps me probably 10 times more than it ever helps them. Knowing that I can continually help other people, I get far more from that. That that helps me keep my mental health very, very stable. So when I was back in my early days and I didn't know where to turn or what to do, just being able to Google um, quick speech and feeling high and all those kind of things, just being able to be able to bump into, fall into the Black Dog website changed everything for me. Um, I found that there was I could read things or listen to things and I was able to connect to those things. It also took away the shame and it took away the stigma that I was feeling in regards to wanting to reach out for help because there was people like what I'm doing right now just openly, vulnerably telling their stories and normalising that. And mental health needs to be normalised. It's no different than any other illness. And the more it is normalised, the more people will reach out for help without worry of what people are going to think. So for me, having these websites and e-mental health available, it's absolutely life-changing. It's always there. It's available 24-7. You don't need someone else to help you access it. You can just jump on your phone and find the resources that you need. Removing the stigma around mental health is probably my biggest driver as to why I share my story. So when this all happened to me back when I was 30 the second time, I was terrified of reaching out for help. I was scared of what the doctors were going to say. I was, I had friends that didn't know what to say to me, how to say to me. They stopped seeing me. They I just became even more isolated. I didn't know how to relate to them. They didn't know how to relate to me. And it was only when I was able to get that monkey off my shoulder that I was able to flourish and be, you know, quote, unquote, you know, a normal person again. I mean, I'm never going to be the normal person that they think. I'm the best normal version of myself with bipolar too. And you know, nobody does well when we all live in shame or guilt or secrecy. Everyone flourishes when they can be open and be the best version of themselves. And I think by asking people to live in the shadows, the other people are missing out because we're pretty incredible people. You just have to give us a chance. So my mental health is definitely not a secret in any aspect of my life. Um, so, you know, somebody Googles me, I can, I can interview a dentist and they Google me. And the first thing that comes up on the Solar Smiles website is how and why the charity was created due to my mental health. So, um, I, I am incredibly lucky and blessed. And I guess it comes with being so open and honest and vulnerable with people that, you know, 
uh, I do work from home as a contractor and on my good days I can work 12, 16, whatever hours, but on my bad days I literally sit at home on the couch and I Netflix for a couple of days and the best thing is, is that my clients understand that and um, they know that when I'm firing on all cylinders, I'm going to get them the best dentist and they're going to love it and da-da-da. But when I'm not doing so well, they know just to, you know, she'll be she'll be a couple of days and then she'll be back and she'll be right. So that's incredibly powerful. Um, I've, been in, I've been really, really lucky. There's been one particular gentleman who um, gave me a chance for about four to six months after my last... Uh, a suicide attempt and you know I pitched for a job with him and uh, he owns a very large company and you know he offered me the job and I went back about an hour later and I said look I have to tell you something I've been suffering from severe depression I tried to take my own life uh, just sort of four to six months ago while I have been working for you how do you feel about all of this because you're giving me this big responsibility and he turned around and he said, Kim, you know, are you well at the moment? And I said, yes. And he said, can you do the job? And I said, yes. And he said, if there is ever a time that you can't do that job, you need to come and tell me. And I said, okay. And he said, right, get out of my office and go and do it. And that for me was life-changing because someone saw me for the person rather than the experience that I'd been through. And I think because he has given me that opportunity, I have reasonably been open. I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't sit in a job interview and say, blah, 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 and by the way, I have bipolar too. Um, I do like to get in the job and, you know, prove that I'm capable of doing the job first. But without a doubt, within a couple of weeks of being in any new job or having any new contract or speaking, these days I, I own my own company and, you know, I had a client ring me recently and they said, oh, one of, one of my employees has just uh, disclosed to me that, you know, she has anxiety issues. Um, you know, what do I do? I want to support her, but I don't, I don't know anyone that has this. And I, lo- I looked at I, I looked at her, she was on the phone, and I laughed and I said, of course you do. I have bipolar too. And she went, what? No, really? And I was like, you know it. You've seen my website. She goes, oh, I just forget. And I'm like, okay. So I said, let's put in an action plan that makes you feel comfortable, them feel comfortable. We're all good. And, you know, it, it is just about being open. She's rung me since and said, Kim, that, that was the best advice. I'm so grateful because I really love my employee. She's She's really fantastic and she's a good fit for our business. And I'm like, See, so being open and honest is for me is the best policy. I know some people don't have the experiences and have had some of that stigma, and I, I feel terrible for that. But I feel that since I don't, I should share as much as I can to try and break as much stigma down as I can. Thank you for listening. If there's been anything in this podcast that you found distressing, don't forget to talk to your usual support person or call Lifeline on 131114. And if you'd like to hear more in the Being Well podcast series, you can find it on the Black Dog Institute website.